0: This episode of the Sun Ranto show was recorded live and streamed on Danny Rocket's YouTube page. If you'd like to listen early and add free to the Sun Ranto show, well, you should subscribe. patreon.com/sunranto. It keeps the show in tickets and beer. Now get over there. patreon.com/sunranto. Support us today. Now you're going to have to listen to some ads. Here's the show. Hey, welcome to, uh, actual John Baker Day. Today is the July 29th, uh, in 2020. And uh, this year for John Baker Day, what we're going to do is we're going to have a ton of conversations with, uh, very influential and knowledgeable, uh, gentlemen who know a lot about black baseball, especially in Chicago. And our first guest who we're going to speak with today is Mr. Bob Kendrick from the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting Bob uh, uh, at least one time and interviewing him at another time. And man, I'm just so excited that you're here. We're of course here with John Baker on his special day. Uh, <laughs> it was six years ago today that he pitched and won the game, uh, scored the winning run. And from the Sun Ranto show, infamous Cub fan, Crawley. So uh, welcome, gentlemen. And I, I just want to say um, we have a, a few questions from some of the Lost Boys who were benefiting this year for John Baker Day. So I think we'll just start with one of those questions. This one's from Dylan Thompson.
3: Hey, Mr. Kendrick. Um, my name is Dylan Thompson. And my question for you today is, how long have you been president for at the Negro League Museum? And also, is this something you saw yourself doing when you were younger?
2: Man, that's a great question, Dylan. I've been president now for nine years, but my affiliation with this great museum is now in its 27th year. I started here as a volunteer in 1993. So, no, I never saw myself in this role. I don't think you could have possibly seen moving from being a volunteer to ultimately trying to run this great institution. But it became a passion of mine. I absolutely fell in love with the story, and I fell in love with the athletes who made the story. And guys, I fashioned myself as a baseball fan, and here I was being introduced to this entire chapter of baseball and American history that I really did not know very much about. You know, like most baseball fans, I knew the names Satchel Paige and Cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson because those names, trans, they kind of transcended and and transformed and went mainstream. But I had no idea about the breadth, the depth, the scope, the magnitude that this history represented, both on and off the field. And quite frankly, guys, I became almost engrossed in it. I wanted to learn as much as I could. And I didn't want to keep it to myself. I wanted everybody else to feel the same way I felt about it. And then I started to meet the players And, and then particularly my dear friend, the late, great John Buck O'Neill, the founder of this museum, legendary Negro Leaguer, whose roots, of course, are so deep there in Chicago. And I tell people all the time, man, once you met Buck and you were bitten by the Buck bug, it was a wrap. You just wanted to be on Buck's team. And, And so that's how it all began for me. But no, I never saw myself in this role. I just wanted to be a part of the organization help the organization grow as much as I could. But I think what it also says, Dylan, that is when you find something that you love doing and you have a passion for it, you know, who knows where that may take you? You know, again, I never saw it from a standpoint that it may become a career for me, but that's exactly what happened. And and every day that I walk into this museum, it is a blessed day for me. Uh, I get to do something that I absolutely love doing.
0: And uh, this is also the 100th year of the Negro Leagues, and we're celebrating that. And um, when we had Levante on the other night, uh, we did a little hats off to you. And I have the little. talked about
4: Bob Kendrick, the guys I've noticed on Twitter, they had something going. You know, I think it's the 100th anniversary. So Mm -hmm. nod to the Negro Leagues with the
2: John Baker Day hat. There it is. I can do that too. No, that's awesome, man. Yeah, no, this is the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro League. i left to give they were to formed, you again. Yeah, no, they were formed here in Kansas City in 1920 by Chicagoan, Andrew Root Foster. And so part of the centennial celebration, which has been, you know, so many of our plans, like a lot of folks across this country, have been derailed by the coronavirus pandemic. And, and so as we were just trying to find ways to keep the celebration going, in the midst of this public health scare that we're all engaged in right now, we came up with this notion of doing a tip your cap to the Negro Leagues. And and as you all know, there's nothing more honorable in our sport than just a simple tip of the cap. It is the ultimate sign and show of respect. And now I had no idea guys that this thing would take off though, the way that it did. And, And so when we created the idea uh, I got with my good friend, the great writer, Joe Posnanski. He's been a longtime friend. We call each other brothers, even though we're not biological brothers, we have a bond that is similar to those who are biologically siblings. And, and I called him and he loved the idea. He reached out to his business partner, who's a tremendous communication strategist out of the DC area, a guy named Dan McGinn. And Dan loved the idea. And then the three of us went to work on this crazy idea that became Tip Your Cap. And and honestly, it went from a campaign to a movement. Because when we launched this effort on June 29th, we launched it with four US presidents tipping their cap. President Obama, President Clinton, President Bush, President Jimmy Carter tipping their cap, along with General Colin Powell, um, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Billie Jean King, Bob Costas, Stephen Colbert, Conan O'Brien. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Of John those Baker. <laughs> and, and those who didn't make their living in our game. We felt like we get some folks, you know, former baseball players, maybe some current baseball players, because they're part of this legacy. But when you start seeing these people who come outside of our sport, recognizing what the contributions of the Negro Leagues are. To me, that's what really makes this campaign so significant. And then, guys, when we (laughs) went into outer space, literally went into outer space and got a tip of the cap from astronaut Chris Cassidy, who was aboard the International Space Shuttle, we knew then that we had something pretty doggone special. (laughs) Wow. Bob, you were
3: mentioning how you didn't, you know, envision yourself being a part of the baseball, Negro League Baseball Museum, but that Buck O'Neill really kind of had an influence on you. And we're going to talk a little bit later about how he had an influence on a lot of important baseball players, especially in Chicago. What was it about Buck and his personality that just inspired so many people?
2: It was the charisma, the energy, the passion, the love that he had for human beings. And, and, you know, I tell people all the time, guys, had the players from the Negro Leagues been bitter about the things that transpired in their lives? Every one of us would have said, well, you got every right to be bitter. But to a player I've ever met, none of them harbored any bitterness. And and Buck was the ringleader of this. He just had this innate ability to love everybody universally. And, And it just exuded such joy that it just kind of spilled over on you. I recall days when he was bopping here to the museum and here I am now I'm 50 years younger than Buck and, and I'm getting ready to get on the elevator to come up one floor and here comes Buck running up the stairs <laughs> at, in his 90s and, and all of a sudden you're like, well, man, I can't get on the elevator. I got to go with Buck. And, and so that's the way that he was. And he was a tremendous leader of men and which is why he was such a successful manager with the Monarchs, a great coach there with the Cubs when he got that opportunity. And George Altman, who played there in Chicago with the Cubs for many years, but brought him over to the Cubs. And George Altman spent time in the major leagues, played in Negro leagues, but also spent time in the major leagues, then would go on to play in Latin America and then had a great career in Japan. And he still says today that Buck O'Neill was the best manager he ever played for. So he understood men. He knew John when he needed to put his arm around you. And he knew when he needed to kick you in your room. And, and, you know, that's a special gift. But people ask me all the time, what did you remember most about Buck? What struck you most about Buck? And all the great stories that he shared with me that I get to share today. But the thing that I, I think I embrace the most is this very simple notion. You always felt better leaving Buck than you did when you came to see him. And there's just not a lot of people that strike you in that manner. But, man, that was Buck O'Neill. And when I met him, the infectious personality, the charisma, it grabbed hold of me. And and for me, I was so blessed to travel all over the country as Buck was literally gallivanting, Mm -hmm. preaching the gospel of the Negro Leagues and the virtues of his museum to any and everybody who would listen. And guess who was right there riding on his coattail? Old Bob. I'm there every step of the way. And, and I guess I was one of his disciples. And, and now I get an opportunity to try and carry on. You can't feel his enormous shoes. You would be silly to even think that you can, but for me to walk in Buckle Hill's shadow is an honor. Yeah, and you know what? I feel like that shadow is protecting me. It is helping guide my footsteps every step along this, this journey.
0: You know, sports keep coming back, and that's great. Well, so does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, betonline.ag. Major League Baseball is in full swing, and there is no shortage of ways to get in on the action because BetOnline has all the odds, features, and props for you to bet on. Also... Tune in as Floyd Money Mayweather joins the Bet Online team in a new segment called The Ice is Right, where he talks about his expensive jewelry collection. He'll give you the chance to win some great prizes and bet on the cost of his bling. Visit BetOnline.ag today to check out all the odds and up-to-date sports news. Don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the welcome back to sports bonuses. BetOnline.ag your online wagering experts. I'd like to bring on uh, Levante Stewart from the Lost Boys has uh, entered the green room. So I'm going to I'm going to bring Levante on to to join us. Hi, Levante. Welcome Good morning, to Danny. Our John Baker Day special. Levante, meet Bob. And, uh, you know, and this is Crawley right up on top. I don't think you met him yet either. John, I wanted to ask you about, you know, there's obviously such an amazing history for the Chicago Cubs. Uh, the great coaches that have come through Chicago. Do you feel that history when when you're in the dugout, when you're kind of backstage at Wrigley Field? Do you feel those guys like Buck O'Neill, kind of their spirits in the same way that Bob is explaining the infectious yeah. personality? Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I don't think that there's a lot of um, stadiums. Uh, you know, Wrigley is, is, is alive. Uh, it has living plants on the wall. Um, and... and you notice it, I think, when you, it's tough. When you're, when you're, when you're a baseball player, you're so focused on uh, the things that you need to do. You know, you're very internally focused. Well, what are all these things I need to do? But playing at Wrigley, and I, I mean, I had a, I had a it, was, it was cheating for me because um, anytime I got internally focused and would go down to the dugout before batting practice or something, when I was a player there, um, Ernie Banks was always in the dugout. So you'd go down there and you'd be having a tough day. And, and as Bob is speaking about, Buck. I had the same experience in my in, with my experience with Ernie Banks, where I'm over my last 12 and I would go sit down, i look over, and I'm like, man, Mr. Banks, why are you smiling so much again? You know, and he's just looking out at the field, smiling, thinking about how happy it was. And like you really felt it, you know, you really felt you really feel those presents. I can remember the first time I ever played at Wrigley Field as a visitor in, in 2008 I had to step out of the batter's box because I thought in my head, when I was getting in, I was trying to get ready to bat against Carlos Zambrano or something. And I had to step out because I thought this is where Babe Ruth called the shot from this, from this, this spot where I'm standing on the field. That's crazy. It's crazy. This you, you experience a little bit of it when you go to Boston and you see the, the seat in right field. And they claim that Ted Williams hit a ball out there. I still don't believe that. Um, <laughs>
2: but,
1: you know, I go on the mound and I think, but um, like the, you know, six years ago today, that night I'm on the mound, but like Ferguson Jenkins was pitching on that mound. You know, like' sharing that space with those people, they're still alive when they're there. and Danny, as you and I know, you can walk down to you can walk down the street um, from Wrigley and go into Graceland Cemetery and you can walk right over by the lake and right sitting right next to the, right right next to Ruth Page is Ernie Banks. And so we take the family a couple times a week and go visit because that's the history of where I work and the people I work for. Uh, so yeah, you, you you absolutely you absolutely feel it. and to to speak a little bit to Bob's point on on Buck O'Neill, in 2004, Buck came and spoke to the to the Texas League All Star uh, teams, and I was part of those teams, and I got to meet him. And the same thing that I had, you know, it's like I know that, you know, it, it's really hard for to to confront these things. And I think this is why we're having these conversations, Bob, is that there's a lot of people out there that don't understand what people went through. They don't understand. It's been the the pain has been washed away. And and, and I think when in 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 our eyes, when you grow up in the suburbs, you don't you don't you don't have the perspective to understand other people's experiences. And in thinking about my time with Buck O'Neill, it's, it's, it's like there's some cognitive dissonance in my mind when I think about how joyful and positive he was and what the energy was like coming off of him in contrast to what his life experience might have been. And I don't, still don't even know personally how to even make sense of that. Uh, I can't empathize. You can't sympathize because as, as someone like me, you're just never put in that place. I had, I had, I had smooth sailing and pats on the back all the way to the big leagues. You know, like I, my, 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 the biggest things I faced were hitting 230 one year in AAA and having to come back from that. Uh, and, and I think about the things that, you know, Billy Williams went through going back to Alabama and my first year as a coach here in, in this organization, um, we get, to, I get to the field and Billy comes in to do his a couple weeks in Chicago. And he was my, uh, we shared a locker, uh, together. So when you share a locker with, with Billy Williams, let me tell you what you do, you get out of that locker as fast <laughs> as possible. With a side of respect, I was changing in 10 seconds, but I felt, I felt so honored to be like, I, I got to serve as like his caddy. You know, like, I'd be like, sweet swinging Billy, what do you need? What do you need from me? You need me to go get you a hat, you need to get me a shirt, Like, what do you, what do you need? And, and, uh, and, and let's talk a little baseball, and you hear those stories, yeah. So Danny, back to your original question. Those people are so alive uh, on that field. And as long as we play baseball there, they're never going to be forgotten. You know, Bob, as a Cubs
3: fan, one of the things that I don't want to say frustrates me but bothers me a little bit is that there isn't a lot of attention paid to Buck as far as, you know, a lot of Cub fans don't know the history of Buck O'Neill and the importance to the Cubs organization. Uh, John was just bringing up Billy Williams, and we were talking earlier, um, you know, people don't realize that Billy – left the Cubs, and, and can you tell us a little bit more about how Buck O'Neill was able to keep Billy Williams in Chicago?
2: Yeah, no, it's a great story, and, and you're right. Billy had actually left the team and gone back home to Whistler, Alabama. You know, I think he had gotten a little homesick, and I, I'm sure he was dealing with some of the racism that was so prevalent at that point in time, and he just said, okay, I'm done with this, went back home to Whistler, Alabama, and who did the Cubs send to go get him? Buck O'Neill. And Buck goes there. And for several days, he would just pick Billy up and drive him around to local ballparks. And of course, all the other kids were so proud that they had one of their native sons who was a major league ball player. Oh, Billy, we're so proud of you, man. You're in the major leagues. And after three or four days of this, Billy finally looks at Buck. He says, "Okay, Buck, I'm ready to go back. And the Cubs wanted Buck to put Billy on the bus and send him back. And Buck said, no. Oh, Buck had an old Plymouth Fury. He said, I'm going to put him in my car and I'm going to drive him. Uh, And he did. He drove him from Whistler, Alabama to, I believe, San Antonio, Texas is where the Cubs are spring training at that time. Billy Williams, of course, becomes sweet swinging Billy Williams, Hall of Famer. And and again, I'm sure Mr. Williams would tell you he owes his career to Buck O'Neill. But Ernie Banks would have said the exact same thing. And John, that infectious personality that you're talking about with Ernie, that's Buck O'Neill. Yeah, Ernie was like a surrogate son to Buck. And Buck embraced him and Lou Brock when Lou was there with the Cubs. And of course, Buck brought both of those Hall of Famers to the organization. And so, but Buck had signed Ernie to play here for the Kansas City Moms, got him out of Dallas, Texas. And and Ernie would, would tell you, That Buck not only taught him baseball, but he taught him how to be a man. He taught him social graces. You know, he he everything taught him how to dress. And and believe it or not, John Ernie was a bit of an introvert when he came. (laughs) 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 And I know that's hard for any of us to imagine who got to know the gregarious Ernie Banks. But that personality that came out of Ernie, that was Buck O'Neill. Yeah, and then Buck would bring you Lou Brock. He would bring you Lee Arthur Smith. So Buck had three Hall of Famers, hopefully a fourth Cub Hall of Famer in Joe Carter at some point in time. But then he also brought you George Altman and Sweet Lou Johnson. You know, all of these guys, Gene Baker, and, and Ernie and Gene Baker were both Kansas City monarchs. They formed the Majors first black double play combination there with the Chicago Cubs. So Buck's roots there in Chicago are deep and meaningful. And and so, yeah, we do wish that the Cubs organization would do more to recognize Buck. They would make Buck the first African-American coach in 1962, breaking barriers. Now, mind you, this is 15 years later after Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier. It took that long before Major League Baseball got their first African-American coach. And and as Buck would say, I was so proud of being the first. But he says, I couldn't stick out my chest because I knew all of these other great minds who had been part of the Negro Leagues who were more than capable of waving a guy home. And, and, And so, but he was this barrier breaker as well. And so, yeah, now we hope that the organization at some point in time will look at a more deeper, meaningful Tribute to Buck O'Neill because he brought a lot to the organization and to the city of Chicago.
0: Yeah, and it is kind of unlauded, At Levante. I was wondering if I know that we have some questions from some of the the kids that play on your baseball team on the uh, on the Lost Boys. How aware are they of the history of of the of famous, uh, well, the famous Buck O'Neill and also Ernie Banks and 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 how Buck scouted all these players how aware are they of even the concept of the negro leagues and what that means to i guess their place in the world now in 2020
4: good question danny and good morning gentlemen i know i was kind of late getting in here i I just love listening to bob um (laughs) but yeah they're very aware so one of the intentional things that we did at lost boys a few years ago is in terms of our curriculum, during the winter time, we call it Winter Clinic, but it's not what we usually consider a baseball clinic. It's just a name. But during the months of January to March, where it, Chicago is you're snowed in, we're indoors, practicing, playing, learning, working on school work, civic engagement projects. But particularly, we have an area where we focus on the history of baseball. And for the girls, you know, they focus on the history of women's fast pitch. And so When we started examining that history, we began to narrow it down in such a specific way that we want to examine the contributions of various races and cultures to the game and how that melds together. So, yeah, we're not just concentrated on black ball players and their contributions. We want to talk about Latin American players. We want to talk about, uh, for lack of better terms, white ball players. Uh, We want to talk about everybody who's played in this game and has contributed to the social fabric through this game, but specifically Of course, we take pride in teaching our children about the Negro League. So it is ingrained and they learn it every year. And some of them get frustrated because they say, coach, I've been learning this for the same stuff three (laughs) years in a row. I said, good. That means you'll be able to go out and, and spit it off the top of your head without looking at your notes. You should be able to engage people in a meaningful way and you should be accurate in the information that you're able to discuss with people. You should be able to expound on some of these things. So a lot of the kids that are with us, they got an opportunity to learn about Mr. Cub, you know, um, before he left us. And so, you know, they've been learning, right? And learning about Minnie Minoso over here on our South side. And so Mm -hmm. just learning the history. Um, We definitely wanted to talk about uh, uh, Buck O'Neill and, and, uh, You know, Fergie Jenkins. I got a friend, George Castle, who's a sports author here in Chicago, and he's written several books on the Cubs, and George is my really, really good friend. So you got this younger black guy, older Jewish guy, and we're like peanut butter and jelly. And I can sit and (laughs) listen to George all day, and George will be on the phone or visiting with Fergie Jenkins, or he'll call me, and he's, you know, down in Florida, sitting out on the patio with Andre Dawson. And so, you know, the Cubs are, man, you know, Negro League baseball and how it connects to Chicago, you know, the rich history, Rube Foster, we have to talk about that, Buck O'Neill. There um, is it, it, just so much in terms of, uh, you know, black contributions to baseball and the kids learning it and them learning how significant that their city is in that history of of black excellence in baseball. You know, just the fact that these kids have to learn that, the largest crowd ever to enter Comiskey Park was for the East West All-Star game. It drew more fans than a normal, any normal game in Chicago. And so that is significant for them to understand. And if we talk about how people would come out in their Sunday best for those games. They didn't come out in, you know, sackcloth uh pants <laughs> and they put they used their their little resources they had to get the best dress they had, the best suit they had. And, you know, you would have thought Jesus was coming that day when folks come out to that game, ready to meet the Lord. But, uh, you know, there's so much, so much, so much pride in that. Danny.
0: Well, can, can I play a couple of questions from from some kids that maybe turn back the clock to somebody like Rube Foster? Because this is from Eli, which is one of our uh, podcast partners.
1: Who is the founder
0: So I don't know if you could hear that, but who are the founder and who are the people that founded the Negro Leagues? And this is the uh, follow-up question from Caleb Morris. All right. My name is Caleb Morris. You know, good morning. It's 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, you know,
4: eating my Italian beef with some fries. So my question for the National Negro League is, how many teams were there in the National, in the national Negro League when it was formed?
0: All right, that's my question. Now, is that a Chicago kid or what? One, 1, 1 a.m. with this. One a.m. With... He's, he's like he's like me I'll, last weekend. I'll you know, i he, did, he got a
2: giant beef at one in the morning. <laughs>
1: Good morning, and he was the,
4: he was the valedictorian of his eighth grade class. That's Caleb oh. just graduated. He's headed to Kimwood Academy. Oh man, uh, he was upstairs
0: <laughs> so so yeah, if we could get back to uh you know, turn back the clock to Rube Foster because I know that there were obviously there was baseball before Rube Foster formed yeah. the Negro Leagues, but could you could you talk a little bit about Rube Foster who also comes from Texas, like Ernie Banks and and kind of com- coming up from there, coming to Chicago, building a baseball empire. Um, if you could expound on that a little bit about his contributions.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, to answer the kids' questions. It was Rube Foster who led a contingent of eight independent Black baseball team owners into Kansas City in 1920. They met at the Paseo YMCA. The building is just right around the corner from where the museum currently operates. And so for a lot of folks who sometimes wonder why a Negro Leagues museum is in Kansas City, it's because Kansas City is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. That's it. And and that's going to be the future Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center, that beautiful four-story mural of Buck as you can see there, uh, it's just absolutely breathtaking as you come in uh, from the going north on the for sale on the south side of that building. But that is where they met to form the Negro Leagues. And so Ruth Foster is affectionately known as the father of the Negro Leagues. But Danny, you're right. There have been black baseball well before the actual Negro National League was formed in 1920 with those eight teams that started those leagues. Two of them were Chicago teams, the Chicago Giants and Rube Foster's Chicago American Giants. And, and then the Chicago Giants didn't last very long, but Rube Foster's Chicago American Giants were, man, they were a juggernaut. They they were one of the dominant teams along with the Monarchs and later Pittsburgh Crawfords and Homestead Grays, and some of the great baseball franchises of the Negro Leagues. Rube Foster, though, guys, a lot of people don't talk about it. Rube Foster had been a great pitcher in the pre-era of the Negro Leagues, the early era of Black baseball. As a matter of fact, Rube Foster, John, is credited with having invented what we now know to be the screwball. Back then, it was called a fadeaway. And Rube really respected this pitch, man, so much so that the great Major League manager, John McGraw, would sneak Root Foster into his camp so that Rube Foster could teach Christy Matheson how to throw the screwball. Guys, Christy Matheson threw the pitch all the way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame that he learned from Rube Foster. But Foster was best known as this visionary, this tremendous leader. He would organize the Negro Leagues. He would become president of the Negro Leagues. He owned the Chicago American Giants and he managed the Chicago American Giants. And as a manager, Rube Foster was known to find his ball players in the early 1900s as much as $5. If you were tagged out standing up, you were supposed to <laughs> Rue Levante would draw a circle down the first baseline and a circle down the third baseline. And if every one of his players couldn't drop a bunt inside that circle, he would find them. Yes, yeah, see, he was adamant about the style of play that became signature in Negro Leagues baseball. Fast, aggressive, daring. They bumped their way off. They still second. They still third. And man, if you weren't too smart, they were stealing home. And, and guys, what made it so special is this was the style of play that drew both black and white fans who sat side by side During an era when doing something socially together was virtually unheard of, Negro Leagues baseball brought the two races together. And that's the irony of this great story. Here's a league born out of segregation that becomes the driving force for social change in this country yeah that's
0: uh, i think that's something that people don't realize they they you know that the major leagues were segregated and i know that we do have another question about that um from one of the kids uh, about whether the um if uh oh from g jihan jihan rockman asks, has a question
2: american about rockman has boys, Inc. my question is in the Negro league times where african american baseball players allowed to play in
1: the m l b league
0: he wants to he wants to know if during the Negro Leagues time if the they were also the, if there were black players in the major leagues and I I think that not a lot of people know that there were black players in the major leagues before the Negro Leagues and also while the Negro Leagues were yeah. ending yeah that that it, that there was an
2: overlap yeah. so I was there was there, there was an absolute overlap because Jackie braced Culverberry in 1947 and, and as Danny alludes. There were other black players who had been part of major league teams briefly. You know, um, there was a couple guys who didn't even know that they were black. People didn't know they were black that were on teams. And then guys like Moses Fleetwood Walker, who was of darker skin, uh, who played on what we would consider to be a major league team going back to the late 1800s. And, And Moses Fleetwood Walker, guys, was a barehanded catcher. Yeah, ouch. (laughs) And it didn't last last long before, believe it or not, a Chicagoan. Yeah, a Chicagoan um, who was so, well, he was such a great ball player that basically created a gentleman's agreement that banned blacks from playing on white professional teams. And there he he is. Yeah, Adrian Cap Anson. Cap Anson was an outstanding baseball player. He is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And so it was easy for him to build a coalition of followers who shared that same sentiment. And that would ultimately ban black players until Jackie breaks the color barrier in 1947. But you also have to remember that it took Major League Baseball 12 years before every Major League team had at least one black baseball player. The Boston Red Sox would be the last team to integrate in 1959 when they signed the late Elijah Pumpsie Green to break the integration cycle. Well, the Negro Leagues would cease operations in 1960, a year later, because by then the best young black stars had moved into the major league or into their minor league system. So the major leagues no longer needed the Negro Leagues. Yeah, because if you were an aspiring young black ball player, you could bypass the Negro Leagues now. Because you could go straight into the major leagues, minor league system and work your way to the major leagues. And so ultimately it put the the Negro Leagues out of business. But this was a very slow, meticulous process that played out over a time span of 12 years. So essentially a major league team would bring a black player up and then eventually bring another black player up so that that player wouldn't be so tremendously isolated. Now, the lone exception there would be the, the Dodgers. The Dodgers were very aggressive signing black players. And, and all these players came out of the Negro Leagues. So you can, as you can imagine, you can't siphon all that talent out of the Negro Leagues and then expect the Negro Leagues to be what they were. And, and then the fan, base, the fan base left the Negro Leagues because there was a natural curiosity to see how these great black stars were going to fare now that they had the opportunity to play in the major league because guys despite what they had done in building the negro league and the exceptional talent that was there in the negro league the world still said the highest level in which you could play this game was the major league and, and so they all aspired to prove to the world that they were as good as anybody who played this game man satchel page took takes a pay cut to go to the major league yeah, he takes pay cut because along the barnstorming circuit, Satchel was perhaps the highest paid player in all of baseball because the entire town, John, was shut down when the old man was coming into town. The entire <laughs> town was shut down to watch him do his thing, and 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 he was savvy enough to negotiate a percentage of the game, and, and so yeah, he takes a pay cut to go to Cleveland in nineteen forty-eight. And he and the great Larry Doby helped Cleveland win its last World Series. Now my Indian fans get tired of hearing me say that. Yeah, they <laughs> won the World Series in Indian- '48. They have won World Series since <laughs> wow. then. Uh,
3: Bob, I think they got to a World Series in 2016. I'm just trying to remember what happened.
1: Uh, yeah. talking <laughs> about some rain delay or something. You know, something, yeah, something, something
3: happened. something, <laughs> be- <laughs> something
1: beautiful happened.
4: <laughs> but hey, Bob, I want to, if I can add to that, I- I'm really glad you brought up uh, the fact about that because I think it has a bigger significance uh, even outside of baseball. It leads still to a current modern-day problem, um, which, you know, John and Danny, thank you so much, and Crawley, for speaking up on this, for standing with us in America to finally say enough is enough. And so when you think about it, that same story is juxtaposed across Black culture. We build all of these institutions for ourselves and for our families and our children and our communities. Because we're isolated and we're segregated from other institutions and from, you know, the economy and being a part of this. And so, for example, you know, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we know about that massacre. But when you examine what happened there, you look in Chicago and Bronzeville after the Great Migration. Some of the greatest minds and legends in Chicago uh, have lived in Bronzeville, came here. Right. Musicians, artists intellectuals ball players bronzeville from all accounts was the place to be if you were black now it's 2020 bronzeville is trying to make a comeback but it's so bad here bob that point we used to call it the low end and you chicago guys know what i'm talking about nobody wanted to go down on 35th and state street if you weren't going to a white Sox game because you had stateway garden projects there you had other projects and you you know and it was just kind of a dismal place, and you would not have known this significant and great history um, about you know all of this success in the black community if people didn't re- preserve those oral histories and stories and try to pass them along. So you really do see a pattern, an, an egregious pattern that has you know really happened to black people as a result of segregation and us building our institutions, and then when integration occurs it flattened a lot of things for us. And so, you know, uh, I just want to mention it because that is still a, it is really a big factor and a contributing factor to the socioeconomic conditions of black Americans, not just in Chicago, but all around this country. If you start looking in black communities and cities, you should see that something is going on and say, wait a minute, something just ain't right.
2: Well, and, and, and to your point, Levante, you can go back. And I tell people all the time, you can trace the rise and fall of the Negro leagues with the rise and fall of black economy in this country. And to a great extent, black economy never recovered from losing the Negro leagues. So again, what was good morally, what was good socially was devastating economically. And and you see wherever you had successful black baseball, you had thriving black economies and to hear Buck O'Neill And Ernie and my dear friend, late, great Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe, who lived and died in Chicago at 103. Yeah, he died in 2005. He was a fixture over at White Sox Ballpark. And to hear those guys talk about what the south side of Chicago was like, man, you know, you just wish you could go back in time and be there. And Levante mentioned the great East West All-Star Classic, debuted in 1933 the same year that Major League Baseball's All-Star Game debuted. And yes, it did outdraw Major League Baseball's All-Star Game because he's right. They would put over 50,000 fans in Chicago's Comiskey Park for that showcase event, one of the greatest sporting events in American sports history that nobody knows anything about. And Bunko Neal says that black folks would come from as far west as Los Angeles by trade, as far south as New Orleans, as far east as New York, converging on Chicago for this showcase event. They stand on the South Side. Yeah, they all stand on the South Side. And, and so you can get an you can kind of get an understanding of how special the South Side was. Or here in Kansas City where the museum is located, historic 18th and Vine. Same thing. One of the I think 18th and Vine is one of the most recognized street cross-sections anywhere in the world because that intrinsic mixture of jazz and baseball that radiated from this street corner. And anybody who was anybody, particularly in the world of jazz, you know, they could get a gig in Kansas City when they couldn't get a gig anywhere else because all the restaurants had live music, all the hotels had live music, and you had nightclubs galore right here in this area that my office is right now. And when we built this museum, it was part of an effort to try and revitalize historic 18th and Vine, who like a lot of urban areas, Levante had died, had died and been left abandoned until we built this museum here 30 years ago as an effort to resurrect this once very proud, prominent African-American community.
4: My granddaddy would tell me stories about that, man. And he would say, you thought the game was something you should have seen the nightlife down in <laughs> because you could just be walking around and, and, and bump into all of these stars. You know, you'd be at a, a jazz club and Louis Armstrong is, is playing at night. And you know, you, you, got, uh, names are escaping me right now, but you know, you see some of the famous actors and actresses for that time and they'd be in Chicago. So you're right, Bob, everybody descended on Chicago for that game and, um, and it, it was just, you know, according to my elders, it was just a blast for a couple of days, you know, here on the south side, specifically down in Bronzeville. You know, it was a big, big family coming together around baseball.
2: Around baseball. And you have to understand, segregation is one of the most shameful things that ever happened in this country's history. But what segregation did was it forced ownership. So the degree of ownership that was so prevalent in those African-American communities, I'm not sure we will ever see that again. Here in Kansas City, Black folks could only move within a 13-block radius. 13-block, couldn't go outside those 13 blocks. But man, within those 13 blocks, you had everything you needed. Yeah, and more. And, 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 and I think what we saw was You saw other folks coming in to this area to enjoy that nightlife and these great musicians. I'll never forget. Buck tells a wonderful story. He says the Monarchs had played here in Kansas City on a Saturday and they were all going to go home. John, they were going to get cleaned up, get dressed, and they're going to come back to a nightclub here at 18th and Vine called The Subway. Well, it was called The Subway because the club was actually below street level. And so as Buck is telling the story, he so said they all sitting around in the nightclub, sipping on a little tea. When a kid walks in, he's got a horn over his shoulder. He wants to blow. Everybody say, let him blow. Well, Buck said his kid gets up on the stage. He starts making some noises out of this horn. They never heard before, but you have to pay attention. That kid was a young Charlie Yardbird Parker. You know, so that's the kind of star power that we're talking about. Louis Armstrong had his own semi-pro black baseball team. Cab Calloway had his own semi-pro black baseball team. And, and so I tell people all the time, all the jazz musicians wanted to be baseball players. All the baseball <laughs> musicians wanted to be jazz musicians. musicians. So fitting that they came together here at Historic 18th Divide
0: back back sports back and so is your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner betonline.ag Major League Baseball is in full swing and there is no shortage of ways to get in on the action You see betonline.ag has all the odds futures and props for you to bet on so do it Also got to tune in Floyd Money Mayweather joining the Bet Online team in a new segment called The Ice Is Right. And he's going to talk about his expensive jewelry collection. He'll give you the chance to win some great prizes and bet on the cost of his bling. Visit betonline.ag today and check out all the odds and up-to-date sports news. Don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the Welcome Back to Sports bonuses. So go to betonline.ag, your online wagering experts. They sponsor this podcast and we thank them, betonline.ag. Hey guys, uh, you ever shave your balls? I mean, you know, sure you have. I mean, why not? Make them nice and smooth. Well, let me tell you how. You got to join Manscaped. They got the lawnmower, the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0. It's a premium electric trimmer. It's designed to give you a confidence boost through your body image. So they got the ceramic blade and skin safe technology, and it's designed to reduce nicks or tugs on your fellas down below, below. So you got the Lawnmower 3.0. It's waterproof, comes with an LED light. You can manscape in the shower in the dark or even in a dark shower, whatever you want to do. They also just released their Shears 2.0 nail kit, which is the perfect add-on to the Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer. See, the Shears is a luxury four-piece nail kit featuring tempered stainless steel tools, and it includes tipped tweezers, rounded point scissors, fingernail clippers, and a medium grit nail file. See, the Shears 2.0 nail kit allows you to pluck your eyebrows and trim your nails in style. Now, on their website you also find the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer, and you know you need it because you got that summer swamp ass going on. Uh, You got that, uh, you know, the uh, natural hydrators and antioxidants in the Crop Preserver, so you want to use that. You'll also find the Crop Reviver, a testy toner that's like having cologne that is designed for your balls. Now, we won't judge you if we catch you sniffing your own balls, but I will be impressed by your flexibility. Now go to manscaped.com and check out some of these life-changing products. What you got to do to get 20% off right now, plus free shipping, is use the promo code armchair at manscaped.com. 20% off, free shipping, manscaped.com, use promo code armchair. It's time to grab 2020 by the horns and shave that front trunk. And we thank you, Manscaped, for sponsoring the Sun Ranto Show. Man, and all, and all the backup catchers wanted to be pitchers, right, John? <laughs> I, I
1: just I, this is blowing this is blowing my mind. You know, Dan, as Danny knows, my brother's a musician, and uh, when he was in Chicago, he, he went and studied at Northwestern Music Performance, plays the trombone, and when he was in Chicago, he played in the Clarence Cockrell Band um, and got to play with Clarence. And I think about just like these parallels of. of oh, yeah of the the relationship between performance, right? Which is my job now, which is focusing on helping people perform better and how these things go from how the athlete can identify with the musician and, and, and vice versa. And then again, thinking about, um, ownership, uh, like we're talking about, I remember, um, I think it was last year or the year before, uh, Killer Mike, the 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 musician, came out yeah. with a TV show, and he did a whole episode on the dollar yeah. and where the dollar goes in and out of the community, and it was things like that where I, I, you know, at almost forty years old, when I when I watch something like that and I go, how the hell did I not know about this? Like I consider myself somebody that tries to stay abreast to like the current things that go on, but um, it's just so hard to to like how <laughs> absent of having conversations like this and having access to to Bob Kendrick and to Levante who's, you know, people who are, but you guys are leading, leading change in the community, but, but doing it by like in one case exposing the actual history um, to everybody, but then also Levante in your case, like devoting your life to making things change. Um, I I just, I hope that, that what we're talking about here gets to a lot of people. uh, And I, and I'm going to hope that the Cubs do that. And and further um, I'm going to, I'm going to cause some problems now and make some stinks about, about this is how I, this is how I do my job. I, I spot things that I don't like. And then I just I just tell as many of people as possible until something changes. And it's actually worked over my last five years of my career here with the Cubs. Um, but the fact that we don't have uh, the fact that we don't do anything like specifically to honor Buck O'Neill, um, especially in this time, like, that's the 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 first word that comes to my mind, or the first feeling that I notice as I kind of mindfully think about what's going through my body right now is uh, embarrassment. Mm-hmm. It's embarrassing the our treatment of this uh, in in our country. Um, I mean, the fact that it takes what it took for me to watch on TV a while ago when that video came out from Minnesota, the fact that it took that it took me seeing that, having to see that, to finally go like, that's it. You know, like we have this we have this day where you know, Danny and these and the and the and the bleacher fans have put together this thing, and we've always tried to raise money for the community. Um, but the the fact that it took that, like again, it's still the, what I feel most is uh, embarrassed, and kind of simultaneously hearing this information, I also feel hopeful.
0: Yeah. yeah. And the the other thing I wanted to say because I've talked to both Bob and John about this is. Uh, you know, is the, the contributions uh, that are deep seated within even the style of play that baseball, then the way that it's played now. Like, if you take the, the Negro League style of play, you know, like you were saying, stealing first, you steal first base, second base, third base and home, you know, <laughs> and, you know, you have your first female player, you know, uh, it, or uh, probably a few Tony Stone. And uh, oh, yeah. and I know that, you know, there was a lot of like the kind of the Harlem Globetrotter kind of style of baseball that that uh, was played Um, that, you know, they call it what flashy. I guess a flashier style of play or, or I'd call it fun. But John
2: Danny would call it showboating,
0: showboating. And that's what,
2: that's used, the word I was looking for. The Negro leaders of showboating, you know, a guy would dive in the hole, flip it behind his back and start to double play. <laughs> and, and, and Buck O'Neill would oftentimes say, so number one, if you got something to show, show it. <laughs> but the other reason is that it, it says only showboating when you can't do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, Bob,
0: speaking
4: on that, I got a question for you. I can't think of the name of the movie right now. It's like For the Love of the Game or something like that. And it was, you know, a movie in the 90s, and it just kind of captured Soul all of, game. of this. Solar. Huh? Yeah, sold it again. Let me ask you about a scene. It wasn't realistic. I think it was a scene that went in Kansas City. Satchmo was on the bump, and I think it was young Jackie coming up to the plate. Uh, was it? If no, it was Josh Gibson. I think one of the players, and he cleared. Yeah, he cleared <laughs> the infield. And he told Jackie to get off. Jackie wanted to stay back <laughs> on the infield, and he's like, "What are you doing, that like, boy? Get off the field, boy!" I, you know, he had control of the whole show, and everybody in the stadium was going crazy. You know, the fans knew what it was. This is Satchmo time. Was that a real
2: story? That that now they they fictionalized that particular storyline, but yes, that was real. And, and so there were times where Satchel – never it never really happened in league games, but in the barnstorming world where he would call the outfield in and sit the infield down as he would proceed to strike out in matter of a game. Now, I can tell you this guy in Satchel Paige's ability more than Satchel Paige. And, and he wasn't bashful about telling you about it. And so they were playing in the Denver Post tournament. And so Satchel has his Satchel Page All-Stars. They're playing an all-white semi-pro team from the Coors Brewing Company. And so Buck is playing first base for Satchel and his All-Stars. And Buck says the first kid from the Coors team gets into the batter's box. He digs in, says Satchel throws him a fastball. John, the kid swung as hard as he could, topped it, dribbled it down the third base line. It stays fair. He beats it out. He gets an infield hit. Well, Buck says about that time, one of the kids from the Coors Dugout steps out on top of the Dugout steps, and he yells out, let's beat him. He ain't nothing but an overrated donkey. Well, Satchel's nickname famously for Buck was Nancy. That's a whole other story. We ain't got time to tell you. That story actually happened in Chicago at the Evans Hotel on the south side of Chicago. Anyway, Buck says, Satchel looks over at first base. He says, Nancy, did you hear that? Buck said, yes, Satchel, I heard him. He said, Nancy, bring him in. And so Buck says he's at first base, John. He turns He motions for the outfield to take a couple steps in. Satchel looks over at first base. He says, Nancy, bring them all the way in. (laughs) There were seven guys kneeling around the mound. Satchel page and the catcher. And Satchel strikes out the side on nine straight pitches. He looks into the coolest dugout and says, Overrated, darky, hey. And, of course, my <laughs> that said this was embarrassed. They all came out to apologize to Satchel and his teammates. But Buckle knew thought to the day he died that if he had one game to win and any choice of any pitcher from any era, it'd be the legendary Leroy Satchel. Phase. He said, you might beat him when he was out there messing around. The man, when he was locked and loaded, forget about it.
0: Well, that concept of showboating is still somewhat controversial in today's game. And I know, John, you wrote an article a few years back about your time with the Toros del Este down in the Dominican Republic. And I've talked to Bob, too, about the just amazing contributions that the Negro League ballplayers gave to those. Well, Cuba. Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico. When when those guys weren't allowed to play in the major leagues, a different form of baseball came to be. Your Sammy Sosa, you know, the kissing kissing uh, the you know yeah. blowing the kiss to the crowd, all that stuff. Right and, John, and and you talked about it, you know, in your article. If yeah, you I'm happy to I'm that. happy to
1: speak on it. So when I you know I was 30 years old and tried to prove to Major League Baseball after a catastrophic arm injury that I could still play, so I took a job to play down in the Dominican Republic. And the, I'll tell the first story, which is hilarious because it, it talks about one of our players right now. But then I'll get to the one that's actually meaningful in this situation. So I get down there and we have this big, overgrown first baseman uh, in the Padres organization, American player, who's just kind of oafish and ridiculous. And he's talking to me about how fantastic it is to play in the Dominican. And I'm like, what's so exciting? He's like, man, every, like you get someone strikes you out like there's their fist pumping, like everybody's having fun. There's a band playing in the out or There's a band playing behind the behind the dugout. Um, you go and play in the Capitol and they got dancers on the top of either dugout. The music never stops. Like, it's just, the energy is so high. You can do whatever you want here. You can do whatever you want. You get a hit, you can throw your bat. And so he's (laughs) like, so we're driving to uh, San Francisco, um, which is like a a three hour drive from where we are on the bus. And so we stop at like a, in the kind of the middle of the country there, um, at at a gas station. And he goes and buys a huge, like multicolored rosary that hangs down to about his belly button. And he's like, I'm going to hit a home run in this game today. I'm going to hit it about 450 feet. I'm going to pop that rosary out, and I'm going to swing it around my neck on the way to first base. And sure enough, in his first at bat of that game, Anthony Rizzo comes up and hits a home <laughs> run to right field and fires the rosary all the way around his neck. And coming from the United States, were something like that to happen in a professional game here. People would have man, lots of feelings would have been hurt by by that, right? They would have been so sad that you showed me up, not not so much concerned about the fact that they threw a meatball that got hit four hundred and fifty feet, but more about what more about what the guy did after he did something amazing. Well, when I looked into the other team's dugout, what I saw was they're all laughing and pointing at him, like all of them. They're laughing and pointing at him, then they're laughing at pointing at the pitcher, the pitcher's got a smile on his face, like he's just shaking his head, and I thought, man. This is really different, right? So I asked one of the players from in, in La Romana when they announce the guys that come up to hit, if they're from the the backyard, as they call it, they say Del Patio, Del Patio, Del Patio, as the guys coming up to bat, because that means he's from La Romana. La Romana, the area um, is you have Casa de Campo, which is this like huge resort, really nice resort in the Dominican, but then the surrounding area is made up by people that have generally come up. Uh, cutting sugarcane. That's what they do down there. You either you cut sugarcane or you you get a job at the hotel or you work at the jumbo. Education usually stops a, around third grade. And so I asked one of the players, one of the Del Patio players, I'm like, man, Victor Mercedes was his name. I'm like, tell me, like, you know, Dime, tell me, tell me about what's going on with all of this. The, the, the stuff gets thrown. Like, what is, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to you? And he goes, Americans think that we do that to show other people up. He goes, but I do that because I'm celebrating my opportunity to play baseball. Every time I get on this field, it's it's. I'm not cutting sugarcane. I'm not folding towels at a hotel. This is my opportunity to do something better. And and having that personal experience and actually being willing to ask the question that took uh, what I what I had learned, what I had been kind of socialized to learn as a as a kid growing up playing baseball in the U.S., which was my way of baseball. The they say play baseball uh, the right way, right? They say that all the time. What that generally means is. Play baseball my way, the way that I learned it, not the way that you learned it. The way that I learned it, um, and, and so it just gave me a new perspective. And I realized that that those things were not my way that I was taught. And I always, I still played the same way. You know, I, if I ever hit a home run, I put my head down, I ran around the bases. And if I got a base hit, I, or if I hit a ground ball, I, I ran hard every single time. I just wasn't, I just wasn't taught to uh, to be flashy. So if I were to try to do it, it would look ridiculous. You know, like you just said, Bob, like. I didn't showboat because I couldn't. <laughs> you know, if, I, if, I, if I man, I and now I watch these guys play. Um I watch these guys play today and like the, the the most exciting players in the game um are guys like Javi Baez and if, if we're gonna just stick with in Chicago, Javi Baez and Tim Anderson, the shortstops that we have in Chicago, like they play with this like passion, they play with this love, and they play with this they play with this flair that man – they ran that. They tried to run that out there. If you tried to run that out there even 15, 20 years ago, man, the, these stupid, uh, BS, unwritten rules that unwritten exist. Rules. <laughs> yeah. My kids call them, my kids call those rules, my daughters call those rules, brules with a B. <laughs> Because the B at the front of Brule stands for stands for, stands for BS.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and, and I can tell you now, there were no unwritten rules in the Negro Leagues. <laughs> if, you, if you don't want me to throw my back, you better get me out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh,
4: but, yeah and, and you know what? Oh, sorry, Danny. I was just going go to just gonna add to that. I was just going to add to that. I struggle with that. You know, 12 years in with Lost Boys, I've been coaching – Uh, Oh my God, I think about 14, 15 years of my life. And I've been playing, you know, baseball, football, my entire life. Um, I struggled with it as a coach for a while, right? Because the way I was raised, I think I mentioned it last time. My mom was liberal. My dad's conservative. So I had this confluence of the way I grew up, right? But I had this great respect for the game and I understood the class in the game. But as I began to get older, I did realize and, and start examining that and thinking about the, those unspoken rules, those unwritten rules. And I'm like, I started really getting uncomfortable with them. And, and in some ways I'm like, you know, it doesn't fit with who we are as, as people, speaking to of black Americans, yeah. you know, uh, that's who we are, a lot of us externally, you know, with, a, with these happy people and this is how we express ourselves. And uh, like what John was describing in, in the DR. And so, you know, I got to a place with the kids, especially a couple of years ago when Tim Anderson took a little flack for his bat flips. And then I loved his response. And that's when I really fell in love with Twitter, because he came with the Migos song Clout. And he put that to, you know, put that as the background to him hitting and doing some bat flips. And then I'm just listening. These are explicit lyrics. And he, you know, he put, and you know, I'm like, you know what? You're right. Yeah, let's roll with it because we got to teach these kids, man. Listen, the kids in my community go through so much. I got a little girl who's out there on that softball field. We got to be careful with her because this little girl still got a bullet in her body at 11 years old. And so the doctor says she has to be careful of her movement on the field. So I got kids worried about things like that. You know, babies now getting shot in Chicago on the south side. So what the heck, man, you hit that ball, you crank one, you're proud of yourself, flip that bat, do a cartwheel down the first, whatever it is that builds pride in yourself, your confidence, enjoy the game. Like I tell them, this is our holy place. When we get to this field, we're celebrating God. We're celebrating life, family, our country. We're celebrating all of these things. So have fun, be a kid. I'm 44 years old. And every time I step on that field for practice or whatever, I become 12 years old all over again every day that I do it. And I'm going to do it, Danny, until they bury me. Matter of fact, bury me with some (laughs) cleats, I tell my kids.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, it's really interesting, uh, John and Levante, the players from Latin America, they still play the game the way the Negro Leaguers taught their ancestors. You see, you have to understand that the Negro Leagues were, the Negro Leaguers, were oftentimes the first Americans to play in those countries. And when they went to those countries, man, they were welcomed with open arms. They stayed in the finest hotels. They ate in the finest restaurants that those countries had to offer, and then would come back home and be treated like second-class citizens. So as a result, a lot of Negro League players would call those Spanish-speaking countries home for one simple reason. Because in those countries, they weren't black baseball players. They were just baseball players. But sometimes people kind of get it twisted. You know, to play the game, the game is still entertainment. And in the Negro Leagues, it was entertainment at its highest form. It did not mean that you weren't going to see great, fundamentally sound baseball. But they were going to bring it, man. They were going to bring it. They were going to put on a show. And and so fans left those games, as Buck O'Neill would say, you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something you ain't never seen before. (laughs) Now, you know, guys, it's interesting that
3: you bring that up because people keep, you know, there's this concern that baseball is nowhere near as popular as it was. 20, 30 years ago, and they keep saying, well, maybe if we change this about the game, maybe if we change that about the game, John talks about the BS rules, that's the like, make baseball fun to watch. And, and, and if maybe we did that, maybe we wouldn't have to have a runner on second and extra innings or this. Maybe if people could watch and have fun, and players could show that fun in their personality, more people, especially younger people, would be into the game. Yeah,
2: there's yeah, you would never have to worry about having a watch. You don't have to worry about a watch. And and I've said this to the commissioner and his folks. If you want to make the worry about millennials and how long you can hold their attention and this kind of thing, if you give me something I want to see, I'll sit (laughs) there all day and watch. (laughs) I'll sit there all day. You won't ever hear anybody complain how long a football game is. Never. No, No. so you just give me something I want to see. You know, and I always harken back, and I know you guys for 2016 was special for you all there in in Cubby land, and Buck was smiling. He was smiling in 2015 when our Kansas City Royals won the World Series and 14 when they get to the World Series. And what I loved about those two teams in 14 and 15, they played a Negro League style of play. Yeah, you know, and so, and as you guys know, man, when you can steal a base, and everybody in the place knows that you're going to try to steal that base. They don't know what pitch it is, but they know you're going to try to steal that base. It doesn't get much more exciting than that. And, and I, was, I was on on one of these sessions with my good friend, our fine general manager, Dayton Moore. And we were talking about the game that the Royals played here in Kansas City. And Lorenzo K, my good friend, I'm so happy for him. The success he's having over in Milwaukee now goes from he scores from first base on a single on a single against the Blue Jays in that playoff game. Yeah. And, and when he makes that pop up slide at home plate and he jumps up and, and you can see the, the place is going absolutely crazy. That's that's baseball, man. It doesn't get any more exciting than that. And, and I know I'm old school. So forgive me. I'm old school. I don't like the home run strikeout thing that has become our game. But, you know, it's like anything else. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I just don't like it. I want to see guys moving. And I know the analytics, you know, basically put managers in positions where they can't do this. You don't want to take the bat out of your big hitters' hands and these kinds of things. But, man, it sure is exciting to see guys out there moving, great pitching, great defense. It's still the formula for winning baseball, in my opinion.
4: Yeah, like Absolutely. seeing the backup catcher pitching and, and getting a win <laughs> in the
2: extra inning game. Yeah. That's baseball. Yeah, but, that's a, that, that'll gotta keep you in your seats, so, baby. So, that, that, that's
1: something, be that's <laughs> something you've never seen before. Uh, the uh, the speaking of Lorenzo Kane, um, he Will Venable who's who's gonna come on, I think, for our third conversation and I we were talking uh the other day in the outfield while we were shagging BP. Um I was asking you know he's our third base coach and he's our he's our outfielders coach and his dad Max played for ten years in the big leagues and, and Will played for I think seven or eight seasons as well. But um, we were talking about, we, I always like to ask him, like, who's the best outfielder? You know, who's the best, who you think the best outfielder is? Like, because we have all these new advanced analytics, but they're really hard to kind of figure out uh, if they are accurate, I think, in my opinion, especially with outfield guys in the <laughs> outfield, because it's like probability of the ball being caught. And that's, that's heavily reliant on positioning before the, before the ball is even hit, anyway. But one of the things that we both agree on is uh, Lorenzo Kane is one of the most fun people in all of baseball to watch, uh, especially at Wrigley field, how he navigates the fence his like spatial awareness of where he is. And, but to your point, Bob, that, that him on the bases is such a pain in the ass because he, he, he's done it a couple times to us where he does this thing where he gets into a pickle and he, he, he gets the like base back behind him vacated for the guy that was on base. So he like purposely gets caught in a rundown and he runs, he gets himself, he ends up running himself all the way back to the base, but the guy who hit the ground ball ends up being safe and he's beat us on it a couple times. And he's the only player in the 20 years I've been in professional <laughs> baseball that has the, has the ability and like the awareness of what's happening. To make those things happen, and so yeah. when you see him scoring on a, uh, him and Javi Baez are two of the ones that really stand out to me as ones that figure out like they know how to play this other game that's happening. That's like you're saying, it's incredibly exciting to watch Javi slide in and then move his hand so you can't tag him, um, or to watch yeah. him to watch him steal home. Those are. When when baseball was finally integrated, that's what we brought into the game. And, and when you look at – or, you know, the second time, I guess, with, with Jackie in 47. But when you look at um, our Hall of Fame, when you look at the best players, uh, <laughs> you look at the best hitters that ever lived, that ever walked on this earth, uh, there's a pretty common theme uh, that I, that I that notice when I think about Willie Mays and Henry Aaron and Barry Bonds. That's a decent outfield if you ran it out there, you know, left, right, and center. Um, so that's a decent outfield uh, and and what are we without without their influence from the people that came before him like who, who, are, who, who is Barry Barnes without his father and without Dusty Baker and without those influence in his, in his and, life Dusty Baker who by the way as we've joked about his actual name is John Baker we- <laughs> <laughs> the
2: original he's the, he's the original John Baker you, you, John Satchel was down with the Braves the Braves brought Satchel down to help him get his pension He was a few months away from getting his pension. So Bill Bartholomew, who owned the Braves, brings Satchel down in 1968. Well, Dusty was a young player with the Braves at that time. And and, and Satchel always called him Daffy. He didn't call him Dusty, he called him Daffy. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and so finally, says, Satchel, my name is not Daffy, it's Dusty. He says, Daffy, I know what your name is.
3: <laughs> you know, Bob, um, John Baker was talking about Hall of Famers. And one of the great travesties in baseball is that Buck O'Neill is, does not have his plaque in Cooperstown. There's an award name for him and stuff like that. But uh, you know, the fact that he didn't get, put in when he was alive and because of his influence on the game as a great manager, as a player, however you want to put him in, he belongs. Where do you see that happening as far as the potential of Buck O'Neill getting his plaque and finally being recognized among the greats in Cooperstown?
2: Well, we thought that in 2006, when they had this epic election of Negro League players and they put 17 in and they left Buck and Minnie Minoso out. We thought that that was going to be the end all for Negro Leaguers in the Hall of Fame because they had put this thing together so that they could put all the Negro League players who deserved to be there in one fell swoop. And then it didn't happen for Buck and Manny Minoso. And Buck missed by one vote that year. And Manny and was very close as well. And it still baffles me that at that time they were both, they were the only two players that are still alive that were on that list in 2006. And it still baffles me that they didn't have a foresight to put both of those incredible men into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So we thought it was over. As a matter of fact, I had basically given up on it. And what we understand now is that through the Golden Era Committee, there is a possibility that both of those guys' names could be on the ballot as early as December of this year, right around the time of baseball's winter meetings, and that there is an outside chance that both could actually get into the Hall of Fame. Now, it will it mean the same to me, to be honest? No, because they're both gone now. Now, we could have had them both there to celebrate with them. But for their fans who have been so vigilant about the fact that they deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, it would be hard for me not to be happy for them because I think they will feel like their voices have been heard and that there has been this level of vindication if it were to happen. And, you I, know, You know, I can say this with no uncertainty. Buck O'Neill is a Hall of Famer. Manny Minoso is a Hall of Famer. Manny Minoso was the Latino Jackie Robinson, man. You know what I'm saying? And and Buck O'Neill did everything you could do in this game. And he did it with grace, class, and dignity. So anybody represents a Hall of Famer is Buck O'Neill and Manny Minoso. And, And so do I think they should both be in? Absolutely. Am I biased? Absolutely. Are the people you, that choose the
1: Hall of Famers biased? Absolutely. absolutely.
2: <laughs> when you get Minnie Minoso,
0: he's batting with five bats at one time. Like, How can you not let a man like that in the Hall of Fame? <laughs>
3: but, Bob, Bob, when you talk about grace and dignity, and I, I don't know if everyone knows this story, you talk about the election of when they brought all the Negro League players into the Baseball Hall of Fame, and he missed out by one vote. Then they turn around and ask him to speak, you know, and, and you think about how, how bitter you might yes. be to be one vote yes. short and then
2: say, oh, can you induct these other people? But yes. he did it. And, and, and there he was speaking on behalf of 17 dead folks who did not have a voice. When the world was saying, you should be, this should be your Hall of Fame speech. He's there speaking on behalf of those who didn't have a voice. And guys, I still say today, that it was one of the most selfless acts in American sports history. And then a little over two months later, O'Buck passed away himself at age 94, a month shy of his 95th birthday. And, and, and so, yeah, you know, there are things that the grace and the dignity that this man displayed in the in the face of defeat was just absolutely amazing. It perhaps was his finest hour when I go back to February of that year on how he handled the news of not getting in, because I had to tell him. I was the one that broke the news to him. And I'm not lying. I was literally on the verge of tears when I had to sit down and tell my friend that he didn't get enough votes to get in, because I really believed that he thought he was going to get in, and that this was going to be his swan song. You know, he was sick, and he never let on to us that he was sick. Never said a word. Never complained that one day. And and so this was going to be the thing that would propel his museum into perpetuity. He didn't want it as much for himself as he did for his museum. And and so when it didn't happen, I had to tell him. And then he would go downstairs on our field of legends. And he delivers this amazing concession speech that day. And, And what he did was he literally implored all of us not to be angry, not to be bitter, not to express any ill will toward anyone who had anything to do with this decision. He said, I had an opportunity. And in this great country of ours, that's all you could ever ask. They didn't think old Buck was good enough. We got to live with that. But if I'm a hall of fame in your eyes, that's all that matters to me. Just keep on loving old Buck. And, and, And I had to remind myself And I think John mentioned this earlier that for Buck not getting in the Hall of Fame pales in comparison to some of the things that men like him had to endure in this country. Yeah. And so when we talk to our young kids, particularly my young ball players and having them understand the love that they have for this game. Think about this. They could ride into a town, fill up the ballpark and yet not be able to get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered them or not have a place to stay. So they slept on the bus and would eat their peanut butter and crackers until they could get to a place that would offer them basic services, but they never allowed that to kill their love of the game. So if I've got to sleep on the bus and if I've got to eat my peanut butter and crackers, then so be it, I'm gonna keep playing ball. And really, that's the winning spirit that this museum embodies.
0: Quick word to you all. Uh, I really appreciate you downloading uh, the Son Ranzo Show in all its many forms. But you are obviously listening to an ad-ridden version of the audio version of our live tape podcast. Now, uh, what you should do, if you'd like to listen to it in this form, is just subscribe for a dollar a month at patreon.com slash sunranto. You get your own RSS feed. You just copy and paste that into any podcatcher, and it will download automatically, just like you're doing right now. Uh, The only difference is you don't have to listen to ads, which would be great for you and for me, who, if I get enough people to join patreon.com slash sunranto, then I can quit doing ads because it's a waste of my time. It's a waste of your time. It's a waste of everybody's time. So do it. Patreon.com slash sunranto. It's a dollar a month. At $5 a month, you get all my music. At $10 a month, you get other stuff. You, I mean, just just take a look. Patreon.com slash sunranto. Poke around. Join up today. It's a dollar. Come on now. It's a dollar. It's a dollar. If you would buy one of the three hosts of this podcast a beer every year, well, that's that's a dollar. <laughs> I can't do regularly anyway. Please subscribe. $3, $5, $10, whatever you got. Would really be appreciated. Sun sunrental. Quit listening to useless ads. Damn it. Back to the show. Wow. Well, Bob, we've taken up your entire morning. And I know that, and I, Scott, I thank you so much too, because uh, I, I know you've got a very busy day. Later on today, uh, you've got this going on, which is you're going to be on The Burn. Uh, uh, is that what it's called? Uh, yeah, it, burn it, with it, yeah, the Burn it. with Mitch. The Burn with Mitch. Uh, and uh, Greg Kreindler, I, if I if, if, am I saying his oh, last name right.
2: correct, I heard, I heard uh,
0: he, he's going to be on with you. And I know you've got an incredible, incredible um, uh, exhibit. Uh, is it still going on uh, of some of Greg's paintings? We
2: just um, took it, it down. Just but took that, it down. One of the, that's one of Greg's magnificent pieces of of a young Rube Foster. Uh, he was a gangster man. Rue <laughs> was a bad dude. Yeah, he was bad dude. He could piss that ball. I, yes. I
0: think sometime in the off season, I would love to just in, interview you about just Rube Foster. <laughs> right. Just get into oh, yeah, no,
2: we you know we can spend the show talking about Rube Foster or Josh Gibson or Satchel Paige, and 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 would have no problem because the stories are so plentiful. Uh, but no, man, I've absolutely enjoyed this, and you know, John, man, it's great to be with you on John Baker Day. <laughs> I remember when I had Satchel Paige Day at Rigby Field. <laughs> In July, it was in July of 1942. It was Satchel Paige Day at Wrigley Field, and and, and the Negro League didn't play as much at Wrigley as they did at, at Comiskey. But this is real special. They're playing the Memphis Red Sox, and it's Satchel Paige Day, and the Chicago Defender, the great African American weekly paper. There, they present Satchel with a gold pocket watch, and the pocket watch is inscribed on the back. It says, to the world's greatest pitcher from the world's greatest newspaper. <laughs> and we recently acquired that watch. That watch is proudly on display downstairs here wow. at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum as a reminder of Satchel Paige Day at Wrigley Field.
0: <laughs> and if you're ever in Kansas City, you, you've got to check out the Negro League Baseball Museum. You've got to eat some barbecue. Oh, and, yeah. and, and you got to go catch a Royals game because uh, that's a great ballpark, too. I had a great time there. And, and, Bob, you know, I just really appreciate everything that you do to keep the history of our game alive and to, to, to bring uh, especially fans that don't know about, well, half of the baseball that was being played before 1940 or 1962 or whenever the Negro Leagues finally uh, uh, unfortunately gave up the ghost or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, you know, um, you know, just thank you so much for bringing
1: all this knowledge.
0: It's, it's really appreciated. And, um,
1: before Bob takes off, I'd like to say Danny, and I think that, you know, we talked about this, Bob, um, we've talked about how, at least for me personally, you know, like the, the, this event, this day started because of something kind of crazy happening. Um, and it, was, and it was a fan run event. But one of the things that Danny knows is that like, I've always wanted, I've always been looking for a time to take my name out of it, uh, to, to, to step back and be a backup. And perhaps in the future, we could make this more of a Buck O'Neill tribute. As, uh, I love you know, it. Austin, Buck yeah. O'Neill Day. Yeah. And just for everybody, I, I like out. the transition. Yeah. And,
0: and just for
3: everybody out there, you know, obviously with the virus and everything, it's difficult maybe to make it to the uh, Negro League Baseball Museum. There's a lot of stuff you can do to support them on their website. They sell a lot of great things. Um, I have uh, this bobblehead here of, of <laughs> Buck <laughs> yeah. O'Neill. Uh, I like collecting Cubs memorabilia. And when you guys came out with those bobbleheads, I, I was all over that. So um, a lot of people can still support the museum, even if you can't physically go there.
0: Yeah, I got a couple of pictures too I want to put up. This is some Chicago American Giants gear that uh I th- you can go buy it on the website right now. This is oh, my dream jacket. What? Yeah, this this is beautiful. <laughs> I, and look at look at the back. <laughs> like that 140 bucks. So, you know, my birthday has passed, but you know, <laughs> Christmas is coming. And uh, you know, uh, so it and also, I know you were doing your hundred for a hundred. I think that's I didn't see that on your site this time, but you can become a member of the Negro no, League probably. Baseball Museum any at any time. So just go to their their website and you know, give them a donation, become a member. It comes with uh passes to come visit, and Bob's always around. So, always, always <laughs> yeah, that's 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 where I met you. There's a, I got a picture of here we are hanging out in Kansas City. Uh, making 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 me and my friends all look like a bunch yeah. of slouches. Danny, yeah. we're
1: Danny? Uh, Danny, we're going to need we're going to need Bob to, to take you to a a, a a suit store in Kansas City the next time you go, so that you don't ruin the picture again.
0: Well, but see, here's but here's why though. Here's Bob sure. collecting a twenty five thousand dollar check. So you know. Um, he can I'm afford to look better than me. I'm always <laughs>
2: smiling when there's a check in the picture. <laughs> oh,
0: wait, I got a check right behind me. I got one of those giant checks that somebody gave me once, too. Oh, well, it's beautiful. Bob, thank you so much. And, and please go to the Negro League Baseball Museum. And also, I want to uh, shout out Levante. And please go to Lost Boys, Inc., too, and check out the work he's doing. This is what we're, why we're doing uh, what we're doing this John Baker Day. We're trying to raise money for the Lost Boys, so please go to lostboysinc.org and donate to Levante, donate to Bob Kendrick and all the great work they're doing and uh, and I guess John Baker Day is now Buck O'Neal Day starting yeah, tomorrow. <laughs> so enjoy the
1: final John Baker Day. This will be, be No, no, be no. We got to
4: keep this. I'm just, I'm just getting here, guys. We got to keep John Baker Day. Well, we we got to make
1: can both work. Don't no worry, Levante. We can treat it like Prince. We can call it Buck O'Neill, formerly known as John Baker Day. Okay, we can have, <laughs> we'll, have, we'll, we'll have some, we'll have some little, we'll have some little script, but it'll be a nice. Uh, I will really appreciate. I really appreciate. I couldn't be honored more too to pass off. Whatever, whatever platform we've built to the people that I feel like actually, actually deserve it. You know, this is Danny and I talked about this concept a lot for for people that come from my situation. You know, I was a backup catcher in the major leagues at the end of my career, but it's time for people like me to become the backup to everybody else. And so that's 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 where I want to move forward. And I don't know, Danny, if I don't know what we decided on with obvious shirts. Um, but do we have it? Do we have a picture of that? I
0: I, th- I think I do have it in here. Let me uh. Um, wait, where is it? Oh yeah, there it is.
1: Yeah. That's what, that's what we're coming out with here. Um, yeah. With, today. Yeah. Today. that that, 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 today. Is, mm-hmm. that is coming out and that's, that's in, that's in the vein of raising money for, uh, for lost boys incorporated and for, for people like me, more of these, more of these conversations, um, so that we can get some history so that we can have some, so that we can have some feel and we can really figure out, we can have a game plan for how we can become the backup to promote these voices, yeah. uh, to talk about this history, um, and, and to, to, when we leave this world, uh, be a part of activism and positive change.
2: Yeah, right
4: what, I'm, what I'm hearing right now, yeah. for us Chicagoans, hopefully we can walk away with this and come back together, Danny, John, Crawley, and let's try to inspire this city, man. Let, let's get buck on that, you know, yeah, the Hall of Fame is important. We, maybe we push that, that's national conversation, but just in Chicago, a statue, you know, we're taking statues down. We need let's to put, put something on those let's empty
0: pedestals. Let's put something up. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for replacing uh, yeah, Columbus. Yeah, you said that, with, Danny. I've
4: been pushing yeah, it. Like, let's
0: go. Forget Columbus. Let's do Buck O'Neill and Rube Foster. i <laughs> we saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm with it. Let's do it. Well, yeah. thank you, Bob. Thank you, John. Thank you, Levante. Right. Thank you, Crawley. Thank you, guys. And, and oh, uh, happy John Baker Day to all. Today is the actual day when we're filming this, and um, – you know, thanks for watching, and um, <laughs> we'll we'll see you on the next episode where uh, we're going to have Doug Glanville on talking about the present uh, uh, state of black baseball in Chicago. And uh, thanks for all being on, and we'll see you guys uh, on the next on the next episode.
1: God bless, guys. Thank you. All right, everybody.